Good evening, and welcome, and thank you for welcoming me. As Peter said, my name is Klaus. I'm a chaplain over at St. Mary's Hospital just down the road, and I'm delighted to be bringing the word this evening. Uh, I also want to thank uh, LaGrave and Peter for allowing me to do something a little different, which is bring the message of the Transfiguration the first week into Lent. The Transfiguration Sunday is typically in the Protestant church the week before Lent begins, so this is a little uncommon, but I think there's something we can learn from looking at this passage with Lenten eyes. We will go to Luke, the Gospel of Luke, for his account of the Transfiguration. That can be found in your Bible, Luke 9, verses 28 through 36, on page 1612. About eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter, John, and James with him and went up onto a mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed, and his clothes became bright, as bright as a flash of lightning. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor, talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Peter and his companions were very sleepy. But when they were fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. As the men were leaving Jesus, Peter said to him, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what he was saying. While he was speaking, a cloud appeared, and it covered them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. A voice came from the cloud saying, This is my son, I have chosen. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. The disciples kept this to themselves and did not tell anyone at that time what they had seen. This is the word of the Lord. Please pray with me. O Lord, our God, it is my prayer that the words of my mouth and that the meditations of all of our hearts together might be not just acceptable, but even pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So there's an old saying that says, never meet your idols, right? You've heard this before, never meet your idols. You're just going to be disappointed or something. We could uh, adjust that for Peter, I suppose, and say, never meet your idols and then propose a camping trip to them because you're just going to stick your foot in your mouth. It's easy to dump on Peter in this passage, I guess. He's always kind of an easy target. But how many of us would have also wanted to stay on the mountaintop? Would have wanted to pitch a tent, one for Jesus, one for Elijah, one for Moses. Stay there a little while longer. Why couldn't they stay on the mountaintop, though? Why couldn't the disciples just stay there in the glimmering glory of God, 
soaking in that shimmering light from Jesus' robe. Well, it's, it's abundantly clear that the disciples, or at least Peter, really missed something. They missed the point entirely by saying, let's stay here. By saying, let's put up some shelters. The text says he did not know what he was saying when he said this. I think that maybe what he missed, and maybe what we would miss too, is that the story isn't just a story about God's glorious presence. And this is what I want to look at in terms of a kind of Lent lens on this passage. It's not really just a story about God's presence. It's actually about God's absence. What makes me say that is that Moses and Elijah, if you just read what it says, they weren't there for the disciples. Of course, it was a gift for the disciples to see them. It was profoundly transformative to see them, and it gave them courage, it gave them hope, it gave them a glimpse of the glory that was to come. But Moses and Elijah weren't there for them, they were there for Jesus. Heavy with sleep, or very sleepy, this translation says, they awakened slowly to what was going on. And not grasping it, proposed, Let's stay here. Let's put up some shelters. The text says shelters. The Greek word is skene, tents, tabernacles. What they didn't grasp was that the time was drawing near for the living tabernacle, Jesus, to depart from them. There was a conversation already underway when they woke up, and the conversation, I assume, would have continued whether or not they woke up to see it. It was between Jesus, Moses, and Elijah, and they spoke about his, what? His departure. Literally, in the Greek, his exodus. His exodus. See, it's no coincidence that in this chapter in Luke 9, right prior to the story, you know how the story began kind of awkwardly after he said these things? I can't stand when a passage starts that way that I have to preach from. But what he said was a prediction for his death. And it's the first time in the book of Luke that Jesus has predicted his death. He's coming into an understanding of his calling as the Messiah. He is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets, and that's why Moses and Elijah are there. That's what they signify. He is the new Moses. Just like Moses led the Israelites in an exodus out of Egypt to liberation, Christ His calling involves an exodus as well, a bodily departure from his friends whom he has come to love from this earth. Departure, death, passing away. You know, all the euphemisms. And to do this, he must go down from the mountain. He can't stay. And that's why Peter didn't know what he was saying when he said we should stay. He must go down from the mountain, away from his friends, away from even the very presence of God. And so that's why I say this passage isn't just about presence, but this presence is about absence, or at least the absence that is to come. That's what the disciples miss. Of course, I would have been Peter. I would have wanted to stay on the mountaintop. How easy would it have been just to stay? 
How easy would it be to skate through Lent? How easy would it be to stay on the mountaintop of Christmas, through Epiphany, to the mountaintop of Easter, to have that kind of accentuate the positive faith, you know? There's nothing wrong with that, I guess, but it can't be our entire faith. There's this hymn, and I don't mean to, to dump on this hymn, but it's, it's called In the Garden. I'm sure almost everyone here has heard of this song before. It was incredibly popular. I don't hear it as much anymore, but, you know, it goes, I come to the garden alone while the dew is still on the roses, and it paints this image of Christ as very personal, and he, it's, it's, it's me, and it's Jesus, my Lord, and it's intimate. It says, he walks with me, and he talks with me, and he tells me I am his own. And how beautiful is that image? And I don't want to take anything away from that hymn. But maybe that's the image of Christ that we want to stick with, you know. It's tempting to stick with that picture most of the time. And honestly, I think there's a movement in Christianity. Maybe you'd say it's a movement, it's a sub-movement of a kind of evangelical thought that depicts Christ very personally, as if we speak to Christ and he speaks back to us. And I think that's wonderful to use that language because that's a place we can go to in our own hearts. And these songs and these ideas are good, but what I want to say is that from a Lenten point of view, these can't be our whole diet. This kind of faith can't be our everything. It's going to run out when, when the going gets tough. It also doesn't work because Christ isn't here, right? He's not here with us. He didn't walk in the door tonight. He departed. It was always part of the plan that he should leave. And also it doesn't work to just stay on the mountaintop because there are places in darkness that still crave light. And as the opening hymn so beautifully put it, it's our calling. We want to build a shrine up there, but it's our calling to walk out of faith down from the mountaintop and make Christ's light known to the world. There's even dark places in our own hearts that need illumination, that cry out for the light of Christ, right? In mine, there are, there are at least. See, the part that the disciples miss and that we might miss about this story is that the transfiguration wasn't first and foremost for them. It was for their Lord. He was there talking to Moses and Elijah. From Jesus' perspective, let's look. He's come to a point in his ministry at Luke 9. It's almost the midpoint of the book where he is beginning to set out to Jerusalem. He is preparing for his departure. He's preparing to leave his friends to die. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust. And God says at the end of the passage, this is my son whom I have chosen. Whom I have chosen. That calls back the words of the baptism, right? The spirit comes down in the form of a dove and says, this is my son, my beloved. Here it's, this is my son whom I have chosen. Well, what has he been chosen for? To die. Death on a cross, death that will bear the sin of all humankind. Jesus knows that this is what he's chosen for. It's a heavy burden to bear and it's a bitter cup to drink from. I hope you don't take this as a sacrilegious thing for me to say, 
but I think Jesus was afraid. I think he was scared because he was human. And I think he was tempted to abandon his calling. We see this temptation in the wilderness with the devil, right? When the devil says, build an earthly kingdom. Live. Live a full life. Build an earthly kingdom. You're God. And so it's tempting to abandon that calling. Several times in the book of Luke, we're disabused of this really harmful idea that because Jesus was divine, he was somehow impervious or like macho or wasn't, wasn't afraid of anything. That he went to the cross, stiff upper lip, didn't feel anything. No, we need to look no further than a few chapters from now when before the crucifixion, he prays, he looks up to the heaven and says, and says Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. I think he meant that. So from this perspective, the transfiguration becomes a story not just about Jesus' glory and it showing forth to the disciples, but actually about Jesus' need as a brother. His need to receive encouragement from heaven. Because as a human, as his time is drawing near, as all of our times will draw near, he needed comfort and courage from God. And yes, the transfiguration is when Jesus, up to this point, is most visibly divine, when he's most visibly God. The word they use to describe the whiteness of his robe is the same word that's used to describe lightning. His robe shone like lightning from heaven. But what I want to also say tonight is that the transfiguration, ironically, is also when Jesus, if we have eyes to see it, is also most human. When he's the most vulnerable. When he's the most in need of love, of prayer, of encouragement from his Father. What his disciples understandably lacked the eyes to see is that. As we probably would have as well, I probably would have, that in that one shining moment... Their friend was their friend, that he was profoundly, fully human, deeply one of them, deeply in need of their love. I hope that this idea that Jesus struggled, that he really struggled to fulfill his heavenly purpose of dying on a cross doesn't come as a shock to us. In fact, I think it should be an integral part of our faith, our faith in a Savior who's both fully God and fully man. Being both fully God and fully man, he was chosen by God to die on a cross, right? The voice in the cloud, he was chosen. But the chosen one himself had a choice. And grace itself depends on his choosing as well his choosing and his humanity to lay down his life for his friends. And the transfiguration, I think, because of where it falls in this narrative is actually pivotal for this choice. I think the transfiguration, in some ways we can look at as this kind of tipping point for giving Jesus in his human spirit, in his humanity, the courage 
the resolve to carry forward towards Jerusalem. If you look just a bit further after this passage at verse 51, we're told, at that time, as the time approached for him to be taken to heaven, right, as the time approached for him to depart, Jesus set out resolutely towards Jerusalem. And that's an interesting word. It says resolutely towards Jerusalem. He's been going around in the towns. He's been making himself known in both his humanity and his divinity. And now the two are married in one glorious moment and he sets out resolutely and he knows what he needs to do. And what will happen there in Jerusalem, we all know. And that's what we are here for for the next six-ish weeks. That's what we're preparing for as we prepare to celebrate the Passion and Easter. Friends, the transfiguration shows that the light of God shines through humanity. That's the good news. That's what Jesus shows us in making himself vulnerable. What this means is that because of Jesus... Ordinary, fallen, everyday people can radiate the glory of God by becoming vulnerable to transformation by God's grace. By making ourselves vulnerable to be changed by God's grace. That's what it means to live in the light of the cross. That there's actually more grace to be had down the mountain than on top of it. But we need faith to see. That even the places in our world where there is great need, even the dark places in our hearts where sin abounds, are places capable of being transformed by God. Places where perhaps grace is already at work if we have the courage to look. Places where God's glory is trying to break through. We observe Lent in order to prayerfully ask God, to give us eyes to see this mystery when we behold it on Easter. That's what we're preparing for, this mystery. Humanity fully alive, divinity in flesh, Jesus Christ fully God, fully human. And we prepare ourselves by repenting That's a theme of Lent. Self-inventory, self-searching, turning over of our hidden places. The psalmist writes, God, you demand wisdom in my innermost heart. Will Will you turn your innermost heart inside out to the eyes of God? In repentance, we visit the dark corners of our hearts and we visit the neediest corners of our world And we shine the light of charity. We shine the light of love. Recognizing that in God's grace, there is a possibility that even the most broken things can be forgiven, that they can be remade, they can be repaired, and not just repaired, but that they can shine like transfiguration. I want to conclude tonight by telling you about a transfiguration I saw. I thought of this, uh, this transfiguration this week um, because it was, it was Ash Wednesday and the chaplains at St. Mary's, we went around imposing ashes on people's foreheads as maybe some of you came here and received ashes on Wednesday night and heard those words, remember that you are dust and to dust you shall return. 
And two years ago, right before the pandemic started, I was working as a chaplain at a hospital in, in Philadelphia. And Ash Wednesday was a big day there, and I was going around the hospital and offering ashes to patients and staff who I thought might be interested. And there was a patient with whom I'd met previously, whom I knew he was a Christian. And he was on a cardiac floor and he was dying from heart failure. And he had good days and bad days, but we had met a couple times and he had told me that he was afraid of death. He was young, he was too young. He was in his 40s, I believe, dying of heart failure already. And he was afraid and he told me he wasn't sure if his faith was strong enough. And I entered his room on Ash Wednesday and before I did that, I first checked in with the nurse and I just wanted to see how he was doing. What, what can I expect? And she said he was having a really bad day in terms of pain, but just in terms of the fear and the suffering in the soul as well. But I felt comfortable entering because we had a bit of a rapport. And so I came in and I asked if he'd wanted ashes. And he was in so much pain that he couldn't talk. He was just kind of, kind of moving, almost writhing uncomfortably in bed. But I asked if he wanted ashes and he nodded. And so I came to the bedside and I knelt down. And I put the ash on my finger and I made the sign of the cross and said, Remember that you are dust and to dust you shall return. And his body, which had been tense, and writhing in bed, just for a second, it relaxed. I don't think his pain went away, but it relaxed. And tears rolled down his cheeks. And at that moment, the appearance of his face changed. To be clear, I don't think that this was a miracle. I don't think that God healed him. In fact, I know he didn't. I know that God didn't take away his disease. But in that moment, the appearance of his face changed. In his humanity, in his suffering flesh, in all the beeps and the cords of a hospital room, God was with him in the ash, and the veil between heaven and earth was thin. And we make this journey in Lent towards the cross, and we go to repentance not so that we feel shame before God, not so that we just look and say, oh, we're so sinful, but because we have faith that even our most sinful parts, even our darkest parts, can be turned over to God and made dazzling, dazzling bright by the power that is in God's grace and the power that is in Christ Jesus. We just need the courage to do it. I want to finish with a quote um, and this will be it. But just a quote from a wonderful, wonderful novel by Marilyn Robinson. Maybe you know it, called Gilead. And this book is written um, from the perspective of a narrator who's an aging pastor. The narrator says this, It seems to me, it has seemed to me, sometimes as though the Lord breathes on this poor gray ember of creation and turns it to radiance for a moment or for a year, or for the span of a life. And then it sinks back into itself again. And to look at it, no one would know that it had anything to do with fire or light. Wherever you turn your eyes, the world can shine like transfiguration. You don't have to bring a thing to it, except a little willingness to see. Only, who could have the courage to see it?
In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Let's pray. O loving God, you've given us a glimpse of your glory, that glory which we prepare ourselves to behold on Easter, the glory of redemption that takes all of the dark parts of this world and promises renewal, promises rebuilding. But Lord, I pray in the meantime, as we walk this journey of repentance and of belief, I pray that we all have the courage to face sin, to face darkness in ourselves and in the world. May you strengthen our faith through the Holy Spirit and through the company of each other to walk along with Jesus on this path in the certain faith of the resurrection. We pray all of this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.